Hey, this is Bryce. Sorry I can't get to your call right now, but if you leave a message, I'll make sure to get back to you. Peace. Hey, Bryce, this is Dan Habib calling from New Hampshire. Just wanted to tell you a little story about my son, Samuel. Um, Samuel's 19. He's in college. He's an aspiring filmmaker, huge sports fan. Actually just got his first tattoo. He got the Red Sox B tattooed on his left arm. Um, Samuel's also got cerebral palsy. He uses a wheelchair. He's got seizures. He uses a feeding tube. He has a communication device on his chair. So he's a complicated kid. Um, and actually, when, I'm a documentary filmmaker. When he was about four, I made a film about him called Including Samuel. And I was doing some interviews for the film. And I interviewed this guy named Norman Kuntz, this amazing disability rights advocate in Vancouver. And Norman said that even if he had a pill to cure his cerebral palsy, he wouldn't take it. And it really blew me away when he said that. So I was doing a screening of the film once at a high school, and one of the kids in the high school said, hey, what would Samuel say? You know, if you asked him, could you, if you could cure your cerebral palsy, what a pill would you take it? So I go home that night, uh, Samuel's probably eight years old, and I say, Samuel, if you could take a pill and get rid of your disability, your cerebral palsy, would you take it? Immediately he said no. And over the years, he's continued to say, you know, this is part of my identity. It's part of my culture. I don't want to give it up. I'll give away all the blood draws, all the hospitalizations. i got to deal with all the medical stuff, but not the CP. And then he says, you know, he just wants the world to be fully accessible to wheelchairs. He doesn't want to change. He wants the world to change. So, you know, he hates when people speak to him like he's five years old. He hates when people look down at him. But now he's passing college classes, and people still talk to him like that sometimes. I mean, Samuel is just the most positive and resilient person I've ever met, and he teaches me all the time just to be confident in who you are, accept who you are, and it's the world's problem if they don't accept you for who you are. Um, just yesterday, actually, we were at a doctor's office, and the doctor was talking up with us about how we can help Samuel speak more easily because he has a lot of speech problems. And I showed him a video of him of Samuel talking at home where he tends to talk a lot more, and the doctor turns to me and says, I think he's self-conscious. Maybe he's embarrassed about the way he talks and he doesn't want me to hear it. And so I turned to Sam and I said, Sam, are you self-conscious here in the doctor's office? Is that why you're not talking that much? He gives me a big thumbs down, no. I said, why don't you talk much in the doctor's office? And he just says, bored. <laughs> he's just bored being in the doctor's office. It doesn't feel like talking. They're not talking about anything that he's really that interested in. So anyway, thanks for listening and uh, see you later. What up, what up? I'm Bryce Huffman. This is Same, Same, Different. As you can tell, we're changing things up a bit for our final episode. That story you just heard was from Dan Habib. From an early age, Dan says Samuel taught him a lot about acceptance and resilience, about disability in general. I wanted to share that story because kids see identity in different ways than adults. They can be more open and accepting of difference. So this entire episode, we're gonna focus on kids and what they can teach us about being more human. To do that, we've got two moms who put conversations about identity front and center for their kids. We've got Ebony West. She works in a classroom with first and second graders. So she gets to witness kids at that age when ideas about identity are first starting to form. And Jody Patterson. She's an author and LGBTQ activist. Thanks to you both for being here. Thank you. Hi. So first, Ebony, tell me a little bit about the kids in your family. Ages, names, who's at your dinner table? Well, um... Daily, I have Leland, who's 10, and Sienna, who's 8. But we also have Lauren, who will be 19 in November, 
Mojo, who's 23 <laughs> and in and out, and <laughs> Layla, who's 24 and all the way out <laughs> in Virginia. <laughs> uh, and how about you, Jody? Well, I haven't heard, I haven't met anyone with as many um, people <laughs> at the dinner table <laughs> as I have. So I have five children. Um, George is my firstborn. She's 20. Cassius is my secondborn, and he's 13. Pinnell is my next, and he is 11. Othello is my baby, and he's 10. And then we adopted um, a man at the age of 19 who is now 26, but he called, he's considered the baby baby. Although he's the oldest, he came to us the last. Uh, so what ages were your kids when you started to see that they were noticing differences in people, um, in themselves, their siblings, their classmates? Well, uh, you know, I, I can speak very clearly on Penelope. Penelope is my third child. And um, within the first year, I started noticing signs of what looked like disruption and anger. Um, and I was seeing a child sort of rejecting almost everything, uh, resisting putting on clothing, resisting hair brushing, resisting teeth brushing, diaper changing, anything that had to do with the body, bath time. There was complete protest around simple tasks all day. And I was really thinking that this child, Penelope, was rebellious um, or maybe unsettled. And so I was doing all kinds of things that a parent would do, longer naps, more stories, you know, longer hugs. Mm-hmm. Um I even sort of tried to pull out dairy. Maybe it's a dairy allergy. <laughs> Everything that I could think of. And right before turning three, Penelope articulated to us, to me specifically, how Penelope saw Penelope. And it was very different from the way I saw Penelope. I assumed Penelope was a girl at birth. Physiologically, I saw a girl's body. And I assumed girl. The doctor said girl. And we all just went about the days you know, interacting with Penelope as girl, by the age of almost three, Penelope said, I am not a girl, I'm a boy. So that's when I noticed Penelope articulating himself in the world and identifying himself in the world uh, uniquely, self-identifying. Wow. Was it like that way with all your kids or was Penelope sort of developing that personality and that rebelliousness earlier than the other kids? Well, I think all of them... um, now that I know what to look for in the signs, I, and I've understood and I've studied uh, the brain a little bit more and the human process around identity, it all happens for us around that age. But Penelope was in opposition to, or I was in opposition to Penelope's truth. So Penelope was compelled to convey it, whereas my other children n- weren't necessarily feeling like they were un- misunderstood. Uh, so okay. although I think all of my children were identifying around that same age, and reacting to the world and placing themselves in context of the world, Penelope was compelled to express it uh, because I wasn't getting it and most of the world wasn't getting it. For my children, by circumstance and also by design, both litters is what I call them because I have my (laughs) adult children and also my smaller children, were um, a little insulated from um, conversations about race and racial identity. They grew up by design in a predominantly African-American neighborhood and uh, went to African-centered schools. For my younger children, they go to a social justice-centered school. So they're having more conversations about race than my uh, older litter did, but they're a little insulated 
Ebony, I like that you mentioned that your children go to very specific schools. Um, and so we also did the same thing. We looked for a school that would center our kids and center their identities. And so my children from very young have grown up in Brooklyn in communities that have centered them as black um, people. And so I don't f- I, I never noticed them having a um, feeling of being on the on the other side, right, or being other. And so I've, I've been watching them and wondering how do they see themselves in the world. And it was, it was a really funny story. Their grandmother on their father's side is a white woman. And one day, just casually speaking, I said, oh, and grandma, uh, being a white woman, and they said, what? <laughs> Grandma's white? <gasps> what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, of course, you know, Grandma, white, she's from Canada, she's a white woman. And this is a woman who doesn't look mixed or ethnic or, I mean, she doesn't look, there's nothing, no color to her skin, no color to her <laughs> hair. You know, you would not be confused. And yet, and still, they didn't know she was white. And they said, it cannot be. I mean, Grandma can't be white. She's the color of my foot, <laughs> which was also such a strange comment. But I think what they were saying was that if I'm black, and I know I'm black, and if our family is black, and if mama's black and daddy's black, then everyone in the family must be black because we are of one family. And so they weren't seeing color, for sure. And they weren't noticing, because uh, my children are different colors, but they they were thinking community and family. And since I'm central and I'm black, everyone in my family must be black, too. And that was the first time I thought, wow, you know, this this concept of other pops up sometimes, and then other times it has no relevance. I had a similar experience with my um, son, Leland, and um, he asked me at the end of the school year a couple of years ago about a teacher of his um, who is by no means racially ambiguous. She's a white woman, (laughs) for sure. And he asked me, is she black or white? And I kind of poo-pooed it because I was really wondering, like, (laughs) where is this coming from and what difference does it make? But I was like, I don't know. But I did end up telling him, like, Miss Janella's white. And uh, he was also a little stunned by that. And to me, I, I had to ask him. I was like, well, you know, you can look at her and see that she's white. And he said, I can't tell white people from black people. Wow. <laughs> well, I did think that was really wow. I thought it was kind of insane. But... When I thought about his friend group, because they do go to this social justice school, and more than half of his friends are mixed race, and they all kind of look racially ambiguous. Ah. So, um, you know, it's nuanced, and Mm -hmm. he's already getting that. But what I really want him to know is that it's not the most important thing. We don't have to figure out what people are and uh, categorize them. I want to hold on to that thought for a second. This is Same, Same, Different. We'll be right back. Before the break, we were talking about how nuanced a thing like identity can be. Jody, how do you help your kids navigate the complexity of that conversation? Like, like how do you frame it for them? Well, I leave it up to them. I, I say it's your responsibility to tell me who you are. That's why I ask my kids to study hard in school and read a lot of books and open up conversations at the dinner table and meet new friends, travel the world, because it's all about framing yourself in and placing yourself in this world. And I just ask them to experience uh, life and, you know, get back to me in 45 years. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we as adults really complicate things and that children know much more than us, almost intuitively. And so rather than, like, really introduce these things, 
um, following their lead and a- answering their questions the best I can and also admitting mm-hmm. to them that I don't have all the answers. But Yeah, and, and, and maybe also I would add demonstrating. Like I'm listening to you, Ebony, sort of following their lead and talking it out. And I think also throughout my life recently, I've been playing with identity in front of my children. Most of the time, we find it to be a painful um, process to find ourselves. And we do it, you know, in bed at night with a book in our journal that we lock up and put away, you know, in these private moments where people can't see the process of discovering our identities. And I try to now do it in public view of my children. It's not shameful to explore yourself. And it's not shameful to transition from one place to another. And it's not shameful to be in limbo. What does that process look like? You say you you talk about these things and you're open in front of your kids. What does that all look like? Well, I say things like, oh, okay, so I'm king. And they say, you can't be king, mama, you're queen. Girls are queens. I say, no, I'm king. (laughs) And they, so for me, it's language a lot of times. I've been using the word king to describe myself. And I say, not king over you or over this or that, but king of myself. And king means leader. And so in this house, I'm a leader, the leader. (laughs) Um, And they find that really funny because they are identifying it to a gender. And so I let, I just let that sit. I also play around with this idea of starfish. I say, um, I, I say, let's starfish today. Starfish means not worrying about any one particular thing, touching everything in life, stretching out, not uh. being girl or boy, just being a spirit and regenerating in there in loss. If there's a limb that gets severed or an identity <laughs> that ends, there's another one that grows like a starfish. So these are very esoteric you know, conversations and my kids get annoyed, but I still put them on the table at dinner time and we play around with them. And I hope it encourages them to be exploratory in their identities. I love the, the starfish concept. That's something that I've never heard before. Um, yeah, I'm totally stealing <laughs> that one from you. <laughs> I am too. Um, with my older children, I had a more limited worldview at that time. But with my older children, I would say things about um, when you grow up and you have a husband or I would say <laughs> yeah. I would make assumptions about who they were going to be without asking them and without their input. And so um, being more aware now, I uh, I leave those really open-ended. I let them define themselves. Yeah. And I think those that comfort of, like, you can be, you will be whatever you are um, is sort of developed and reinforced through conversation, right? So I've started this thing called The Lab um, in my house where we can all – bring our truth to the table. So if there's an argument on a topic, we sit down and we lab it out. The rules are everyone gets the microphone. When you have it, you can speak as long as you want, even if that takes 10 minutes. The other rule is you can't interrupt. So, and these are like arguments of any you know, type, who gets the front seat in the car or something as deep as gender. Um, and so I have a 13-year-old, and, and one of the things that we argue or, or disagree about in the house is gender. Uh, and Cassius says... To his brother, who is transgender, Kasha says, you know, look, I I respect you. Um, I'll always use the right pronoun. Uh, You can do anything you want in this world. But scientifically speaking, let's be real, Pinnell, you are a girl. Physiologically, biologically, you're a girl. And if we're talking through the lens of science, which I believe we should, this is a girl's body. You are a girl. How do you protect both kids in that instance? Um, How do you let them both have that? 
room to be themselves. Well, that's the, that is the, that is the lab. Like I'm protecting both of them, right? So it's not just the kid who we might assume is more fragile who has uh, who identifies as trans. I see them both as needing um, space to have a truth. And what I found is there's no one truth, right? No bigger truth in this kind of situation. And so uh, after Cassius says his bit, um, and really that, you know, the idea that science proves that trans is not, it's, it's he hasn't, he doesn't have all the facts. He doesn't have all the scientific facts, right? Because there's science to prove gender variance and history to prove gender variance. But I let, he says his piece, you are a girl. Uh, and it's not, it's not factual. Trans is not a fact. And so then Pennell, who is indeed trans, says, well, look, Cassius, it's not always science and I'm not science. I'm the way God has made me. I am here. I exist. Therefore, trans exists. You know, proof is in me. And this is the way God has made me. And then Cassius, the science kid, says, oh, my gosh, you believe in God? <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's not proven either. So, you know, over the last eight years, they've been on this conversation and they've never gotten any closer to agreeing. They are on opposite ends. And the goal is not to agree, right? The goal is to lab it out, to talk it out. Um, because if these big concepts exist, which they do, different ideas, different truths exist, then we want to be ready and prepared to experience them. And they, at the end of the lab, at the end of this series of talking it out, they're like, oh my God, this is boring. Do you want to go play basketball? <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you you have this lab with your kids and um, Pinnell is going to experience opposing views to who he is. Mm-hmm. And at home with love is probably the safest place to practice standing in his truth and opposing ideas. Um, I mean, it's like it's practicing, but with a safety net because you know that there's unconditional love. I think that's really important that kids get a chance to practice saying what they think and believe because sometimes they have like really absurd beliefs and, you know, it's best if they try them on at home (laughs) so they don't get out there in the world and get like totally demolished. So, you know, they can practice. Yeah, and I think for me the the goal is there's so much pressure to lie about yourself, right? to hide some aspect of yourself because either it's not appropriate for your parents or it's um, counter to the culture of your classroom or for whatever reason, or it's shameful. And so I think my goal in the lab is to resist the pressure to lie about ourselves and to talk about ourselves to the point where it becomes uh, boring and we want to go do something else. But rarely do we have that moment where we can really talk with the microphone in our hands for as long as we want with where it, and it's not an argument. It's not a, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. It's just for the sake of talking, which is rare because usually we're asked to show up in only bits and pieces of ourselves. I also um, think, you know, humanity's collective conscious is spiraling upward, but I really feel like it's kids that are leading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not young children, but right now, for sure, millennials. I mean, for one thing, they have language that I never had. I never (laughs) heard of um, a gender spectrum or a microaggression or, um, I mean, so so much language that might have been used in academia, but now it's commonplace. And so they have ways to describe um, things that aren't black or white. You know, I didn't have this language. I didn't teach my millennial kids about 
um, these things. They taught me about it. Mm, yeah, good point. I like that idea that it, our children now have words to describe the gray areas. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad the gray area is being talked about so openly nowadays. It's cool to see young kids grow up with an understanding of identity and power and history. It gives me a lot of hope. Check out Jody Patterson's book, The Bold World, a memoir of family and transformation. Thank you, Jody, and thank you, Ebony, for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Thank you. Today was great. This is the final episode of Same, Same, Different, but that doesn't mean we should let these conversations stop here. I hope you have open dialogues with your friends, family, even random people you meet out in public. You can find me on Twitter at BryceHuffman313. You can also head over to Facebook and join the Same, Same, Different podcast group. Shout out to everyone who's already joined. I look forward to hearing from more of you. Same Same Different was created by me and my work aunties, Sarah Hewlett and Jen Guerra. Shout out to the rest of the team, Bob Scon, Zoe Clark, Jody Westrick, Emma Winnowicki, and my fellow Bureau reporter, Dustin Dwyer. The theme music is by Jack Phillipson and the logo was designed by Sean Mack. This week's artwork is by Rochelle Baker. Thanks to all the artists who contributed to the show. Shout out to Andrew Wahi, Leland West, and all the other kids who helped inspire this episode. Big thanks to Dan Habib and everyone else who sent us voice memos. And hey, if you like what we're doing here, these kinds of conversations from Michigan Radio, kick in 20 bucks. It'll support this podcast and show that you want more conversations, more podcasts like it. Just head to michiganradio.org different. Thank you so much for listening. Peace and much love to you.